Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Three mistakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at frito Okay, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Kente Corner. We are coming to you on St. Patrick's Day. As always, I am Bobby Bancroft at Bobby Bancroft on Twitter. And I'm joined today by one of the one of the good Georgetown posters out there, a Georgetown alum, John Hawks. You can find him at Florida Hoya. He's been on Hoya Talk, Casual Hoya. And this week in particular, he did a good job during this tough time of no basketball, coming up with some really good lists about Georgetown games. So wanted to have him on. John, what's up, man? Hey, Bobby. What's up, man? Well, we're just trying to get through these times. Um, before we jump to one of your lists, and we're gonna we're gonna break up your list into a couple podcasts because there's a, a lot of good material here for the off season. Um, we found out this week that Omir Yurt Seven in some actual basketball news has he's turning the corner. He's going to another chapter. Pretty good one and done year for the Hoyas. Fifteen and a half points, almost averaged a double double, just under ten rebounds a game. And if he hadn't gotten hurt, would have set some really good marks. John, were you, were you surprised about this at all? I mean, no. It's one of those situations where they told you exactly what they were going to do before the start of the year, right? I mean, it was very clear from the press conferences in the preseason that I think Omer intended for this to be the one year he played at Georgetown, sort of developed his reputation, developed his bona fides for the pros, and then that was going to be it. I think, you know, the tendency maybe for folks, message boards and stuff is, you know, in a void of, not a whole lot going on. You try to create a narrative that's not there. Maybe it's a little wishful thinking, but no, it doesn't surprise me in the least that he's, he's you know, going to take his talent to the NBA or to, to Europe or wherever. How surprised would you have been before the season if I said after this year, um, Allen would be a much more beloved Hoya than your seven? I, to, okay, to be fair, Terrell Allen is a very lovable individual. I mean, right. I, I, I think, you know, I can recall, you know, Nolan talking about when Terrell Allen committed to Georgetown as a transfer, he was like the perfect one-year rental. Um, if a player yeah. is going to bring in as a grad transfer to, to sort of play a certain role on the team. I, I don't know if the idea of bringing Terrell on off, Allen off the bench ever made entirely a lot of sense. It was sort of an awkward fit there before the roster turned. Um, but, you know, it actually, I was thinking about it before we, um, we started this podcast, like where you would fit actually both of these guys, you know, Terrell Allen and Yurt Seven in like the sort of the recent pantheon of grad transfers or kind of one year, one and a half year mercenaries on mediocre Georgetown teams of late. So you've got, you've got these two, you've got Rodney Pryor from the end of the JT3 era. You've got whatever you want to call Josh Smith era. And I mean, to a certain extent, they all had, you know, stat lines that were really useful, but on teams that really were not useful. So I don't know where. Where do you think your seven stacks up in this this group? I think that most people, 
you know, in watching how you watched Mosley play through a lot of injuries and he was obviously hurt. And, you know, Allen was playing 40 minutes. Blair is playing 40 minutes. Pickett's playing as much as he can. I think the fact that because your seven wasn't in a walking boot, and look, we have no idea how much pain these guys are in, right? Um, I think he's going to be looked back. And, you know, his year, there was, you know, since 2000, the 2000 season, only Mike Sweetney, Greg Monroe, Jesse, those are the only three players that have had more rebounds in a year than your seven did. And if he'd played the whole year, he probably would have been further up that list. But I think him not playing when a lot of people thought he had that he could have just kind of toughed through it, I think is going to sort of be the factor when people look back that, you know, it just really was kind of disappointing. It's, it's a really interesting, trying to think of the right way, the delicate way to say this. It's a really interesting study in narrative. And I, again, I think the, when, when there's a void of information, the things people sort of talk themselves into Right. About a player, there, there, there's a fine tradition that goes back years and years with Hoya Paranoia of, in the absence of any reliable information from the athletic department, from the basketball program, fans will just overinterpret the heck out of any little quotes or any little observation that somebody says on a message board. Because so, they're dying for information. Probably the most harmful thing to Amerier Seven's like long-term reputation with Georgetown is like the one press conference where Patrick Ewing seemed to imply yeah. that it was kind of on Omer, like the trainers had basically cleared him and it was kind of on Omer to make the decision to play or not. Was that actually the case? I, I really don't know. And to be honest with you, and, and tell me if you agree with me, you watched him play against St. John's in the Big East tournament. He's nowhere near hundred percent. I really do honestly think he was injured to the extent that he probably shouldn't have been out there or he was not yeah. going to be effective if he was out there. And I, I think, it was a sort of a snowballing narrative from that first press conference where Ewing said that. And I mean, to be, to be a little critical of Ewing, he has had a tendency to be a little imprecise with the language. And that kind of created this sort of mental block everybody had. That they just said, oh, the guy clearly is holding himself out because he's being selfish. And I don't know if that was actually the case. Yeah, we all walked out of that press conference like, did, did Ewing really just say that? Because that was pretty harsh. And if you notice going forward, he stopped saying that. Although, so I think that was a Wednesday night game. I'm not exactly sure, but so the big East has their press conferences on Thursday, the, um, the uh, media call and Ewing backed it up then. But then the next time that we got him at home, he had changed from he'll play when he's cleared. So, you know, (laughs) it's hard. It's hard. It's, it's hard to know. Um, on the four players that you mentioned, I think Josh Smith probably, you know, has the best career because he made the tournament. And if he hadn't been suspended in basically a season where I don't even know why he was eligible based on the amount of games he played for UCLA as a junior, um, they would have made the tournament that year as well in 14. So Josh Smith, you know, was the best rental, I think, if we're going to rank them. I really there is an alternate universe where Rodney Pryor plays on a decent Georgetown team. And he is yeah. one of the most beloved Hoyas of all time. Like I oh, mean, yeah. for the, for the, the volume scoring, the spectacular dunks, he's a terrific guy too. Um, but man, like I remember he had a great dunk in the, the biggest tournament game, his only year when we were just this season had already gone to nowhere. And I thought, gosh, man, like what a, I don't want to say waste, but man, that guy on a better team could have been amazing. 
Yeah, so could Trout. Yeah, it's, yeah. Trout. and they got they got really lucky. It's crazy because I remember walking out of the preseason media day thinking, why is this guy here? McClung's going to play a ton. Akinjo's going to play a ton. I always thought Blair was going to have a bigger part of this team than I think a lot of people did. And this was before, obviously, everybody left. So you're like, that's a couple. And, and oh, sorry, I didn't even mention Mosley yet. So it's like you got four guys you know are going to play. This is a guy that just, you know, played on a team that gave Duke all they could handle. But they got lucky. He wanted to come home. And when we finally got a chance to talk to him, he felt like it was a program on the rise. He got to come home. He was just into it. They got really lucky that he that he ended up coming here. Yeah, you know, one of the things like consistently over the years that Georgetown fans are always clamoring for and clamoring for, at least under the JT3 era, was for him to finally open up the rotation, go deeper than, you know, seven or eight guys during a season. Yeah. There was a perpetual, like there was always the V Stanford on the roster. You know, there was always the, you know, Bradley Hayes when he was still like a backup to a backup, right? The guy you wanted to play more, he would just open the rotation. And then it kind of feels like this year we got our wish. You know, we had a roster that, Ewing was going to kind of roll with it going 11 deep. You know, I think that Blair might have had a couple of DNPs there at the start of the year, but he was going to roll 11 deep and we kind of got what we wished for. And I think when we look back in the season, those early games, you'll look back and you're like, what the heck was that doing? Like, was that ever going to work? Like, it just didn't seem to make any logical sense to have a guy like Terrell Allen with no natural spot in the rotation that wasn't going to cause friction somehow. It seems obvious in retrospect, but, uh, you know. Well, I mean, going going back to the beginning of the year, you know, my tweets are out there and whatever I wrote's out there, but I thought it was pretty clear that it would, the, the struggle was going to be how does Ewing handle this many options? It didn't – I mean, do you think there's any circumstance where if they had been struggling – well, I mean, look, after the Greensboro game, who knows what happened? Maybe he comes and says, hey, James, you know, we're going to sit you for Allen, and he was like, I'm out of here. Who knows what happened? But – do you think there would have ever been a ever been a time where McClung and Akinjo are struggling at the same time? He's like, you know what? We're going to go Allen and Blair. I mean, it's hard to imagine that he would have ever tried that, right? But that was a combination that wasn't, you know, that could produce. Yeah, it's. I don't know. If, I don't know if you ever could have actually made that move, and it wouldn't have angered somebody. I mean, maybe the whole maybe the whole thing was always kind of a house of cards. What was interesting to me. Yeah, there's been some decent, interesting stuff on, on Hoya talk in the past couple of weeks of people trying to parse out through different phases of the season. Cause the season does break down nice into like thirds or quarters based unfortunately on like roster movement. Right. Um, you know, the period of time up until the Greensboro game before the four departures, that little interregnum there right afterwards, like the Oklahoma state and SMU games. And then once like McClung got hurt and then your seven got hurt. And, and the conclusion they've sort of come with looking at, you know, offensive and defensive like adjust efficiency is defense was never particularly good at any point in the season but the team with the 11 man rotation wasn't particularly good <laughs> it just, you know i don't know how much of that is skewed by a small sample size or the fact that i mean the mount st mary's game is i should have a separate list for games that are just not so crazy and you want to forget about but that's that game is drugs yeah, it was, but, it was, I, I think, I think it's hard for someone to play 11 guys, right? And we saw, like, like, like uh, you mentioned, um, Blair in the Texas game got a DNP healthy, right? So that yeah. was like, okay, they're going to go 10. Um, it was clear that guys were going to get chopped. I figured it was going to be Gardner 
and um, I was figuring Gardner and Blair because he just he just wasn't hitting. Um, but it, I I think that's one of the things that you know Ewing gets a lot of credit for bringing the guys together that he had. But I think one one of the things to look at is like th- he didn't have any options. Like those are the guys he had to play. So, but we could probably talk about this forever. I think it would be wrong not to jump in to one of your lists. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. And yeah. let's go. It's going to be, we can't really talk. We're going to just kind of gloss over, but you did a top 20 list for the underappreciated games basically since 2000. Well, I guess if you give people a little background, is that when you were in school or how'd you pick 2000 just because it's 2000? Or is that like kind of your start point? Uh, it is my start point. So I'm, I'm the class of 2004. So the fall of 2000 was the year I started going to Georgetown. I was okay. a Biggie fan before I came to Georgetown. I was rooting for Leonard Hamilton's Miami Hurricanes. I love Leonard Hamilton to this day. I actually okay. really did not like Georgetown when I was yeah. growing up because I think Georgetown must have beaten Miami in the Big East tournament something like 25 consecutive years, even though Miami had only been in the Big East like 10 of those. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, 2000 is when I started at Georgetown. Um, you know, a nice round number. I, I will say when I sent, I mean, just the nature of who some of my Twitter followers are, it's mostly people who are my age or a little bit younger, but I did get a decent amount of, you know, suggestions of people from you know, the mid to, to early 1990s too. So there's some good games there. I, I know some that are just in the back of my brain that I've read about, but yeah, this is the 20 years of stuff that I've been going to Georgetown games. I've just finished up year 20. Um, it was a doozy, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> But yeah, this is this is 20 years worth of uh, games I was doing. I guess the genesis of the whole thing, I mean, other than the obvious that like a lot of college basketball fans are sort of working our way through right now, the, the fallout from the COVID-19 situation. It's, it's not lost on me. You know, we're recording this on Wednesday night. Right about now, we should be probably watching Xavier getting our ass kicked by like a SOCON team in the first four. <laughs> Travis Steele gets a technical for arguing that Tyreek Jones is getting called for too many fouls. But, I think I yeah. think they played themselves into a one seat in the NIT when I when I was up in New oh, York. Yeah, I'm being, I'm being very generous to Xavier. I'm still looking <laughs> about that game. I'm being very generous to Xavier here with the uh, the first four. Maybe they're like the St. John's style first four, where like you know St. John. This is a true story. St. John's was in the first four last year. It's hard to believe. Um, that, is, that is a that is technically a true fact. Chris it's Mullins crazy. made an NCAA tournament. That is a real thing that happened. It um, is. Um, so the, I think what we're going to do at Hoya, we're, we're going to do at Hoya Talk, what we're going to do at Casual Hoya is we are going to put up a bracket at some point. And we'll probably go with 16, but you've got a pretty good top 20 list. And let's work from the bottom. I'm going to just look, I'm going to look at 17, 18, 19, and 20. Pretty good list here. So 20, you've got the 2002 Marquette game, which is a huge Georgetown comeback. Jason Clark was a part of that. 19, you have DSR's buzzer beater against Florida that was on a channel that I don't even know if it exists anymore. Access TV. 2016 was... <laughs> 18 was the Maui win over Oregon where Georgetown had just blown a game to Maryland. 
gotten blown out by Arkansas State, and then they go to or they go to Maui and beat number five Oregon, and number seventeen Stop. was. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you talk. I'm sorry. I, I was just trying to get these out real quick, and then you can tell me the best parts of them. And then number seventeen is uh, JT 3s first win up in the Carrier Dome with um, that was Austin Freeman and Chris Wright and Jason Clark and Julian Vaughn. There's a pretty good picture where they're all hugging each other at the end of that game. So, of those four games, what's what kind of stands out to you? I mean, the the Oregon game. That's uh, so we're doing the uh, we're doing the deep cuts list here, right? Okay. That's that's the deep cuts list. There's two lists I have. So there's the deep cuts list that I just put up tonight um, on my Twitter account. Um, and there's also oh, the that's gonna be my fault. Games. I got I got the list confused. That's all right. They're all they're all great games. Um, so the deep cuts list um, and the underappreciated list. Underappreciated games. Um, those are the kind of games. This is the, the poll I put up over the weekend on Twitter. Um, they're if you made a top 20 list of like your best games, best Georgetown games of the past 20 years, you're going to have your obvious ones up there. Your 2006 Duke game, your, you know, 2007 tournament run and so forth. But, you know, probably somewhere down there, like towards the 20s, you're going to have these other games that people like and they appreciate, but don't probably get as much love as they deserve. Um, And so that's, those are the ones I was talking about over the weekend. The deep cuts though, um, these are the games, this is honestly a lot of stuff of things my friends brought up to me, like games that we remember for some really obscure, like it's usually a single reason or something that you could summarize in a single phrase or a single player, or like one single player, a weird thing that happened. And so they're the sort of, they're the album cuts of, of Georgetown basketball, basically. The B-side uh, tracks? The B-side tracks, yeah, of course, if you will. Um, the Oregon game, I was, you know, the Oregon, I was laughing about this Oregon game earlier today. There's this whole genre of Georgetown games, and a, a, several of them are in the deep cuts list, um, that are essentially, I can't believe that Georgetown team beat that team, right? Oregon, yeah. that year, Oregon made the Final Four. That was a Final Four Oregon team, and not like a 10 seed sneaking in. Oregon was like a, a two or a three seed. They beat Duke on the way to that Final Four, I think. Um, and that was a fairly comprehensive win. Um, for Georgetown and Maui, like you said, it came on the heels of the the uh, the Maryland game, um, the Arkansas State game, McDonough. Um, mm-hmm. true, true story. I got I got kicked off the hoop club board two days later. I think after the <laughs> Oregon game. Because wait, I, uh, this this could be the rest of the podcast. Uh, yeah, you had Mark Guerrero on the podcast uh, earlier. We did your, your podcast live. You did, yeah, yeah. I got in a little trouble over that one. Um, Mark kicked me out, which, by the way, I deserve. And it was, Mark was completely right to do so. So if you're listening, Mark, you were right. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, you know that that team by that point, it was pretty clear. I, I I had you know made the in my mind I knew leaving the Arkansas State game and driving home. I was actually having a conversation with my wife in the car. I said basically, this is the season that it's going to be over for JT Dray. Um, if you can lose that game to Arkansas State the way that they lost, they were getting blown out for most of that game. Yeah. Um, then this team isn't going to get any better. You've completely lost and they're not getting any better. That's in the back of my mind. And after they, had, they beat Oregon, then they got blown out by Wisconsin, I think, the next night. And then they got really blown out by Oklahoma State. Yeah. And I, as I want to do sometimes, I put up a Twitter rant, a tweet storm, if you will, um, about how 
you know, this was, you know, this, this, I was comparing it back to, you know, going through the end of the Esherick era in 2004 and how the fan base, you were losing a whole generation of fans because of how the team was doing and they weren't doing enough to keep everybody engaged. And I, I basically, I, what I probably got me kicked out was I said, you know, if you want to actually do something about this, first of all, you know, do this, you know, go write a letter to Joy or do this or do this. Don't worry about the hoop club. They really don't have any power to work on this particular issue. And oh I, boy. I, we, I, that, okay. You know, it's like, you know, saying the magic word to get a technical foul, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I ended the tweet storm basically by saying, you know, in my opinion, he's going to get fired in March. And it turned out I was right. Um, but yeah, that got me kicked out. So the Oregon game, however, if you go back and rewatch the Oregon game, completely meaningless in retrospect, but it's a great game. It's a really weird game to watch. And you get to, listen to, you get to listen to Bill Walton. Yeah, you do get to listen to Bill Walton, don't you? Yeah. Um, but it's in this genre, right, of Georgetown games where, you know, that team beat Oregon. The 2009 Georgetown team that, like, totally imploded during the season managed to beat both of the Big East teams that made the Final Four that year on the road. And it was different times of the year. It was UConn in December. It was Villanova at the end of February. Are those, um, games, on, are those games on here? They're both on the list, yep. Um, I tell you what, when when they went up there and won at UConn, I was just like, wow, like, this is just a full running machine. Like, it doesn't matter who you lose. Like, this, they, they just have it. <laughs> I was so wrong. There's, there's, uh, Jay Billis was, was doing color on that game, and I think he said something like, Georgetown came ready for a fight. Yes, right? he did. And it looked like. And this was, you know, this was the first year, this was post, you know, Hibbert, you know, class leaving, and it's a big roster turnover, and Greg Monroe's a freshman, but it looked amazing. Um, but, yeah, actually, the, the UConn, that UConn game is 20 on the underappreciated list. Um, okay, or just that, crossing game, streams. You know, I apologize. Yeah, somewhere, I don't think it actually, did it actually make the deep cuts list? I think I left it off. The, uh, the 2014 game at the end of that horrible season, in February, when Georgetown beat Michigan State at MSG, that was actually I went up to was, a really fun game to go to. Was uh, Jabril back for that? Ah, uh, gosh, I don't think he was. Because it's the way I remember that season was um, obviously Josh Smith didn't do something academically, so he was you know the latest in a string of years of midseason losses. Um, and then Jabril broke his jaw in the Providence game. I think when the game was already yeah. out of hand. Yeah. This is this is what two things that sum up that 2014 season was Jabril breaking his jaw on a play where he got called for a technical foul that he probably deserved. Yeah. And Nate Lubick, I think the same year in Butler, busted up his nose committing a foul on a fast break that Butler got an end one on. So, you know, good times. This this is why you remember the deep cut game. The deep cut. No, the only game on the deep cut games that, and I apologize for getting it wrong at first that I didn't really remember and I had, I had to look it up was the last one, the Marquette game where Georgetown was down 17 in the second half. And that, that was during a period where they, they just didn't lose home games. You know, I mean, I think Kansas was the first, the first non-conference to beat them. And obviously Marquette's in the conference, but there was a time they just, they just didn't lose home games. Yeah. You know, actually I had not, I had blocked this game out of my mind. I mean, it was, you know, I love, I love that. Actually, honestly, the 2012 team is probably my favorite Georgetown team in 20 years. Um, oh. purely, uh, purely sentimental reason. I love Jason Clark, love Henry Sim, Paulus Thompson, that whole team is great. I had for some reason blocked that game out of my mind, and it only came to my mind because randomly, I think, like, you know, it's, 
it's late February, it's early March. The Marquette Golden Eagles are setting their season on fire again. Right. Their fans, they have a lot of great Twitter followers. They're, they were getting kind of antsy and they were talking about all their past February and March collapses. <laughs> and this one, I think Buzz Williams was still coaching then. This one came up and a lot of Marquette fans, for whatever reason, are still really bothered by this game for some reason. I think this must have started some kind of losing streak for them, but I had kind of forgotten about the game. I did too. It was definitely a good memory. Um, and keeping going down the list, and obviously we're going to post this on Casual Hoya, and you can go to at Florida Hoya, that's FL Hoya. He's got some really good stuff out there. Um, and keeping going down the list, which we were going to do the different one, but I just pulled an audible. The 2008, the Cuse ending in overtime, I remember that being a pretty big game. Um, Georgia had to come back. Jesse Sapp, I think, had like a steal and a layup. They forced overtime. And Johnny Flynn, you wrote on here, Jeremiah Rivers versus Johnny Flynn. Johnny Flynn took just like, it almost went in, but it was like at the time when everyone wasn't shooting a million threes a game, he just took a terrible shot, I thought. That's sort of my remembering that from where my seat was. Like, what a terrible shot you just took. This is, yeah, this is, um, this is one of those games that probably gets lost because so many games in 2008 were so crazy. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are several even crazier finishes than this one. It actually ends up looking kind of pedestrian. But yeah. it's weird to think, you know, an overtime game against Syracuse at home that came down to a last shot. And, like, nobody really remembers it. But I sit, I, up until this year, I sat in, in Section 118. So I sit behind the, I guess, the basket on the side where the opposing team sits. And so I have sort of a, and I'm next to the tunnels, I have sort of a side angle on that shot. And so I'm, I'm looking at it when the ball's in the air, I'm like, holy crap, this is going to go in. I didn't realize until I saw highlights of the game, how far back he was. And actually he was pretty decently defended. Yeah. That's why Joe for me on Twitter said, you know, it's Johnny Flynn and Jeremiah Rivers for the game here. Um, Jeremiah doesn't get a lot of credit, by the way. He actually had some, he, he was a great defender and he actually ended up contributing on some pretty significant plays in the clutch. I mean, there's the, the Villanova game that year that people know because John Wallace hit the free throws at the end to win it. But Jeremiah Rivers was the one who stripped the ball on Villanova's possession to get it back in the final second. Yeah. I, looking back, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, one-year rentals for Georgetown, but guys that transferred and got away, I don't think many people are going to, you know, cry over Jeremiah, but I always tell people, yeah, he couldn't shoot. Okay. I get it. He's nowhere near as good of his, as his brother, but he played 15 minutes a game on a team that, you know, went to the final four, won the big East, won the big East tournament. You know, I mean, he was that, like losing him and Macklin in that off season, which led to that 2008, nine season that just kind of fell apart when they were at Duke or whatever. Um, he was a big contributor and it's too bad that he left. I don't know what he wanted. Um, you know, we're probably never going to know, but he was, he was a solid, a solid contributor. Um, for time constraints, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of just, I'm just on, I'm on your Twitter feed. I'm just kind of looking around. Um, the 2002 Big East tournament against Providence. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. I didn't go to Georgetown. I grew up in the area. Um, I had, I've been, been a Georgetown follower since Alonzo Mourning's freshman year. I was like fourth grade, but um, I was in college. That w- That was my senior year. Not a Georgetown senior year, but my my own senior year. And you know, Biggie's tournament usually comes at spring break. And uh I remember that 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 ending. I think that was a t- that was a team with John Linehan for Providence. I think John Linehan played at Providence for twelve years, so you're probably right. <laughs> but 
But um, that was a crazy ending. I think they lose the next round to your Miami Hurricanes. But um, yeah, I liked... it, was a, it was a tremendously disappointing and conflicting moment in my household to watch my former <laughs> team beat my current team. But I liked I, I like for even though these are these are the deep cuts, I like the older deep cuts because there were some pretty good teams there that when, like looking back now with the struggles that Ewing is having, you know, Eshrick recruited some teams that had some guys, you know, and yeah. I thought so, that was actually go, go going on. back to the point you made going back to the point you made earlier. Speaking of speaking of Eshrick, we were talking before we transitioned to this about how hard it is to make a 10 or 11 man rotation work. I think the only time I've seen Georgetown ever do it successfully was the 2001 Eshrick team. Yeah. They went legitimately 10 or 11 deep, and they were doing it. What was weird was with several players who were seniors who at various points had started, like Anthony Perry and Nat Burton and guys like that who were not starting by the time 2001 came around because they had Gerald Riley and Mike Sweetney in the lineup. That's just an aside, but yeah. I no, mean, you're right. If you're going to pick a team that's like a deep cut team, like a year that's a deep cut year, it's either 2002 or 2003. There are so many weird the 2003 team has like five or six out of seven games that just end horribly like a Rube Goldberg machine of how could you have possibly lost that game that way? And it all happens like in a three week period. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised we all just didn't give up forever after that. It was, it was, <laughs> it was yeah. But it, it, um, it, 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 it's very much a deep cut year. No, you're right. I'm, I'm going up your list now. I'm really skipping ahead, but it really brought me back your your 2001 the team you know the Georgetown team that started out 16 and 0 and I don't think they were even ranked at that point I think they might have they might have just cracked the rankings at that point but um, Seton Hall and Eddie Griffin had a real problem with Georgetown for some reason and Georgetown beat them at home and I think I think I think Seton Hall that I think that's uh, that's Louis Orr's group um, uh, I think Seton Hall was Seton Hall was ranked what? in the top ten. The 2001 Seton Hall is still Tommy Amaker's Seton Hall. Okay. Louis Orr. Um, this was this was I would call the, the 2001 Seton Hall Pirates combustible. Um, the story, so this was the second so for whatever reason the Big East always feels like they do this every year. You end up with one team you play twice in like a week and a half. And Seton Hall was I think pre probably preseason top ten. Eddie Griffin, Ty Shine, all those guys. They played Georgetown. I think Seton Hall was just outside the top 10. They maybe lost once, and Georgetown was still undefeated. They played up an MCI, and Georgetown won. It was over Christmas break, so not a lot of students were there. I wasn't there. Yeah. Um, but I think this game, the one in, in New Jersey, was, I want to say, the first or second day back of the spring semester. And Georgetown, I think had, I think Georgetown was ranked, and I think they may have even been close to the top 10 at this point. They, they took them a while to get ranked. But... This was still a little top 20 matchup. It was still like a big deal to be a Seton Hall team that people thought was going places. Now, the backstory of this is after the game in, in D.C., I think Eddie Griffin and Ty Shine got into a fight in the locker room. I think Ty Shine got a black eye in the fight. Um, and so the Seton Hall team, combustible is a great word. They completely fell apart until they recovered long enough to beat us in the Big East tournament. That's neither here nor there. Um, but... This is the game, I mean, the one play that, if you remember this game, you remember it for is Demetrius Hunter dunking on Eddie Griffin. But yeah, John, um, you know, I love that those 2001, 2002 Eshrick teams made it on here. I think that in that moment, I know myself as someone that grew up 
rooting for Georgetown that there was a lot of, you know, angst towards Ettrick. But I think when you look at what they're, what's happening now and you look at some of those teams and I think that they're aging well, if that makes sense. There's, there's goodness in everyone. There's goodness in even an Ettrick in every team. I mean, when you look at some of the talent on those teams, it's just, a, you know, it's unfortunate that it's, you know, I made the joke on a couple podcasts ago that, you know, if Georgetown shuffles their assistant coaches, and this is obviously not a real thing, Ashrick was a hell of a recruiter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I always remember one of the last, in his last press conference, one of the quotes Ashrick had was, we asked him, well, what's coming? Ashrick said, help is on the way. He wasn't He wrong. was right. I mean, that class turned out to be he pretty good. Right. He, he he was definitely right. Now, obviously, different things would have come to play. Oh, speaking of that, and I'm sure that this is on your other list, and now this has turned into the early 2000 Georgetown um, deep cut list. But you brought up some names I hadn't thought of in forever, and you had mentioned, you know, what if you had a senior Tony Bethel, Drew Hall, Harvey Thomas playing with freshmen, you know, Roy Hibbert and Jeff Green, and that my, my mind almost just, like, completely blew up. I don't know how I've gone 20 years without being able to do that math, but my gosh, yeah, like it, it checks out. Like, oh my gosh, yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a legitimate what if, you know, I don't know if Tony Bethel and Drew Hall are like program changing players, but they were absolutely useful pieces that could have been really helpful. And on a 2005 team, that was, would have been really interesting. It would have been really interesting. And it's just like in the moment, things seem so far away. Like the 96 Iverson team and the Elite Eight it seems like it was 20 years in between, you know, um, the O one team that made the Sweet 16. And that's kind of the same period that you have now from the 2015 team that made the tournament as a four seed and whatever happens in the next season. It, it just, when you look back, it doesn't seem like it's like it's that far away. But in that moment, if you told me that Drew Hall could have played with Jeff Green, I'd be like, whoa, do you have like his eighth year of eligibility? Yeah, yeah, man. We're getting old is what the point of the story is here. That is the point of the story. Hopefully people aren't getting tired of the podcast because I'm hoping that this has been one of the brighter spots of the season. Um, As always, you can find us on all the places you can find podcasts, Spotify, Google, Apple. Um, We're going to have John's list up on Casual Hoist so people can vote in a bracket style at some point. And we're going to have John back soon. He's Florida Hoya on Twitter. We're going to have him back. Hopefully Andrew can join us. Uh, Andrew's busy tonight. He just couldn't make it. He's uh, big timing his own his own SB Nation Casual Hoya podcast. But we're going to have him back on, and we're going to talk about the list that we were supposed to talk to. And I apparently crossed the streams on that. John, it was great to have you on. You're a great Twitter follower, a unofficial Hoyas historian. Thanks a lot, man. And the lady in the podcast is telling us we got to get out of here, man. So stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you all later. I'll see you.